This is Speaking of Faith's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Columbus Stewart, Executive Director of the Hill Museum and Manuscript Library at St. John's Abbey and University in Collegeville, Minnesota. I spoke with him on September 3, 2008, at the Hill Museum and Manuscript Library. This interview is included in our program, Preserving Words and Worlds. Download the MP3 of that produced show at speakingoffaith.org. These are questions I've always wanted to ask you. So. Well, they've already asked me exactly what I had for breakfast today, <laughs> but I presume you're going to be a little more uh, genuinely more, personal. Yes. Than that. All right. <laughs> um, it's a very different sound, and it's kind of echoey, Mitch. You know what that is? I sound like I'm in a, an echo chamber. Yeah, you're in a well. You're in a concrete box. Yeah. <laughs> could be part of it. A little bit of acoustical stuff. I need a watch too. Okay. Because I was hitting my watch yeah. against this. Why don't you take so. this? Okay. I'll put it in. All right. Um, Can you hear me? Yes. Columbus yeah. sounds better than I do. Hmm. More atta- <laughs> more attachment points. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. Here's what. Yeah. Trent, is that all right? Aesthetically? Yeah. Uh, if you're wearing the earmuffs. Uh, <laughs> I've already ruined it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. This is radio. I'm not going to give no. in completely to this visual distraction. We, uh, we'll work on her headphone addiction later. <laughs> Okay. Um, yes, it, it sounds weird. Um, I'm still, there's still this echo. Do you hear it? Do I need the headphones off to sound normal? Um, okay. I had my usual. Yeah, okay. Have we met uh, Wayne? Oh, you're Wayne. Once. You were okay. Around, I was and you're Wayne. I need. Okay. Around. All right. Good to see you. Yeah. Just try to grab me. Yeah. But be obnoxious if I'm not looking at you. Um, I think that's better. It's still funny, Mitch. I want you to... Well, maybe that's... Talk to you. Uh, sure. Do you hear any kind of weird stuff with mine? No, yours does sound normal. It's, does mine, mine doesn't sound normal, though, does it? It sounds like there are two tracks of my voice, and they're slightly off sync. Okay. Um, testing, testing. Um, 
It's amazing the um, the different things that go wrong. Because I mean, mm -hmm. the technology is incredible, but every time there's something new, almost. Well, there's a lot of little bits to it. Yeah. this home. I'm surrounded yeah. by women. She said, you know, when I was first working in the church, it was all men, and now it's all women. That's right. That's right. It's very different. <laughs> it's very different. I, I, she's a role model in that way. I keep in touch with her through Kay Provine. I don't know if you know Kay. Mm -mm. Um, she works at the Episcopal home. As oh, a I guess chaplain. I, I think yeah. I've met her. She's from the same part of Louisiana as my mother. Oh. Is your mother still there? No, she's in Texas now. Yeah. Okay. <coughs> um, or can we, are we rolling? All right. So I really do, actually, whoever I'm interviewing, whatever we're talking about, I start by getting a little sense of them, their background of their life. And um, did, so you grew up in Houston? I grew up, I was born and grew up in Houston. Okay. In a Catholic family? Uh, pretty much. My mother Catholic, my father Presbyterian, but not practicing mm -hmm. for the most part would go with us to the Catholic Church. So we were all baptized Catholic and mm -hmm. went through the usual sacraments and so on. Was, was it pretty unusual to be Catholic in Houston? In those years, it was a little unusual, but there were a lot of Louisiana people in oh, Houston and East okay. Texas. And so that, right. most of the Catholics came from there. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, it's completely different because of people moving down from the north and then, of course, the Hispanic population growing so much. Right. Um, and then did you go to Harvard as an undergraduate? Harvard as an undergrad. Mm -hmm. What did you study? I did uh, a special Harvard concentration, as we called it there, called History and Literature. Mm -hmm. And it's essentially a dilettante major because you do both history and literature and you pick a specific place, country, language, and a specific time period. So I did modern uh, British and French history and literature, so basically late 18th, 19th, early 20th century. Mm -hmm. And I mean, d did you have a sense in those years that you would be heading towards a monastic vocation? I was always drawn to some kind of church vocation, but it would wax and wane as I sort of did all the things you're supposed to do in high school and college. Yeah. But I was always attracted to the liturgy. I was always attracted to the history and tradition. Um, I was fascinated by what little I knew about monasticism, but I had no real awareness of it as a living phenomenon mm -hmm. or as an historical one. I mean, I can't imagine that, 
so when were you in college then, in the 70s? 75 to 79. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine that there was a lot of energy around that kind of future at Harvard in the 70s. So where did, where did, how did you kind of start moving towards that then? Well, just before I went off to college, I sort of reconnected with my Catholic faith and regular practice of it. And I'm not entirely sure why that happened. Maybe I had gone through such a period of rebellion that I thought I wanted something more stable before I went off to the unknown of, of yeah. college and the East Coast. And at Harvard, I found a very strong um, Catholic student organization. And I wasn't kind of a gung-ho activist or anything, but I was involved and regularly went to Mass, found sane people to talk to. Um, and that provided a, a kind of steady rhythm through all the other stuff that was happening in my college years. Mm -hmm. And then what happened? I mean, did you kind of head this direction when, after you graduated? Well, it, it sort of happened in two or three different steps. The, the first monks I actually met as living then 20th century monks were uh, Anglicans. Huh. The Society of St. John the Evangelist, the Cowley Fathers in Cambridge, mm -hmm. had a very active ministry with students and local people. And I met a couple of them because I was doing 19th century British church history is really the main part of my work. A lot of French literature and a lot of English church history. And I met them and I loved the way they lived. I stayed with them, I prayed with them, experienced what it was like to eat as a monastic community in a refectory, listening to somebody read a book, right. watch the way they yeah. interacted. And I loved it, but it wasn't my church. And uh, my mother threatened on more than one occasion, uh, not quite to disown me, but to raise serious objections if I became Episcopalian <laughs> and entered that religious community. Uh, so that planted a seed. And then when I went off to Yale for my first round of graduate school, um, I met a couple of monks. There was one who was actually doing a summer Latin course at Harvard between my Harvard and Yale time. And then the second, uh, Eric Hollis, who was one time director of oh. this library, mm -hmm. was doing a doctorate at Yale. And it was through the two of them that was I... Was he already a Benedictine monk? Already a Benedictine, both were. Mm -hmm. And uh, through them I got a sense of what was happening in modern Benedictine life and then made my first visit here in 1980. Yeah. And this was a very, very exciting place, um, kind of a radical place in the 60s and 70s. Well, it was on all kinds of fronts, liturgical, yeah. ecumenical. Um, I was drawn to the way the liturgy was celebrated. Uh, I was drawn to the intellectual vitality of the place, because mm -hmm. I would have been a college professor right. if I hadn't come here. And I just liked the spirit in the house, all these intelligent, really funny people. Mm -hmm. I mean, funny in the sense of humorous yeah. and, and witty. And, uh, and I like the fact that we did things like this manuscript project. Mm -hmm. And though, although I didn't work with this for 20 years, I like the fact that it was here. Yeah. So um, do, you, do you refer to, uh, uh, people up here just say Himmel, is that right? I mean, mm -hmm. should we use that shorthand? Um, Hill Monastic Manuscript Library. Was it always the Hill Monastic Manuscript We've Library? We had many names. Okay. Many names. We, we started off as the Monastic Microfilm. Project. Right, Monastic Microfilm. That's what I've seen in that. Then it became papers. the Hill Monastic Microfilm Library. Mm -hmm. um, then it became the Hill Monastic Manuscript Library because mm -hmm. we wanted to de emphasize just the me medium of microfilm. Yeah. And our most recent incarnation is Hill Museum and Manuscript Library. Oh, I didn't even know that you Because of the St. John's Bible. 
Okay. And the Arc Artium art and book collection, which are now part of who we are. Mm -hmm. So that we actually have um, material, physical things to share with people mm -hmm. and not just the archive of photographs. Okay. So Himmel works because Himmel works. through all of these changes. <laughs> And the microfilm project, as it was initially conceived, which also gives you an idea of how the world has changed technologically, mm -hmm. just in that. Um, it's very interesting, as I was looking back, it was um, in large part a response to the fact that, to the awareness that so many manuscripts had been destroyed in Europe in, through the World Wars. Mm -hmm. And this, what felt like a very present danger in 1968 of... Um, nuclear catastrophe in Europe. Is that right? That was the focus? That's right. We, we actually mm -hmm. got started a, a bit earlier, and 64-65 was the key year. Mm -hmm. So it's not long after the Cuban Missile Crisis. It, it really is the height of the Cold War. And so many of our monks had close connections with Germany and Austria. Historically, we did a lot of material assistance to those monasteries mm -hmm. after World War II. And these Benedictines came from Germany, That's the original right. Originally from Bavaria. Mm -hmm. So uh, at that time, our focus was on Austria and Germany, um, particularly Austria, because Austria was a, a neutral country, but it was really the front line between East and West in the 60s. Mm -hmm. And that seems so remote yes, it does. now. <laughs> yeah. Although recently, of course, we're sort of dusting off Cold War attitudes, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that was the inspiration, was to make sure that somewhere there was a copy of these manuscripts in case there was a nuclear conflict because mm -hmm. that was the particular anxiety. So, I mean, you've written, um, as a Benedictine monk, I have inherited the impulse for cultural preservation. Um, but I wonder, uh, were you always aware of that, this inheritance after you came here? How old or were you, 25? Um, or how, how did mm -hmm. that become part of your consciousness? How, mm -hmm. do, you, do you recall how that became really important to you personally? I entered when I was 23, but um, that instinct had, had been with me personally long before. Anybody who grows up in a family with southern roots, and my f mother's family is from Louisiana, uh, has an awareness of history. Mm -hmm. And it's often a tangled history, but it's a, it's a deep awareness of history. And I also grew up in a home that was full of antique furniture and things my parents had collected. And I was always a collector myself know, the usual sorts of stamps and coins and rocks and shells and all of that kind of thing. So in a sense, I had, I had an impulse when I came here. Mm -hmm. And what I liked about coming to a Benedictine monastery was inserting myself into a, to a tradition that had roots even deeper than my own family or regional roots and also brought me in contact with some of the things I've been studying, uh, the world of languages, the, the world of antiquity, Mm -hmm. By the time I came here, my own scholarly interest had turned to the early church from the modern period. And uh, there was continuity between all that stuff and, and what we do here. Mm -hmm. I always felt um, that this place, that St. John's, that per, but the Benedictines perhaps in general and St. John's in particular, really um, make vivid and alive this notion of the church through, through space and time, across space and time. That's kind of what you're describing in your Well, and we, and we somehow bridge it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, we, we dress like this. Yeah. Um, and you, but usually there's a cell phone on my belt. So <laughs> I mean, how, how we put that together, I yeah. think, is one, of the, is one of the great Benedictine stories because mm -hmm. it's not just a 21st century effort to bridge this, but 
Benedictines were early adopters of all kinds of technology, whether it was timekeeping technology, so we got up on time for the liturgy, or printing in the 1450s. Um, people think that we would have been naturally resistant because we had such an investment in copying manuscripts. But when somebody came along and said, there's an easier way to do this, we loved it. Uh, and equally with the microfilm. Microfilm seems antique to us now. It was avant-garde yeah. then, wasn't it? In the it? 60s, it yeah. was cutting edge. Uh -huh. And convincing an Austrian abbot that he should let us into a medieval or Baroque library to use this ungainly modern microfilm equipment to shoot medieval manuscripts was, uh, was really a dramatic intrusion of modernity for them. All right. But of course, as Americans, we were very American in our embrace of technology, even as we were also Benedictine in an openness to connecting the tradition with, with technology. Mm -hmm. So, I want to, you're going to, you have some manuscripts with you and um, I want to talk about some particular projects, but I, I'd like to just begin with, um, yes, am I, am I moving around too much? No, no, just, just, Oh. No, it's okay. Do I sound all right? I have this feeling that I don't sound like myself if I don't have my headphones on. Well, you don't sound like yourself, so that's what I might have to do too. Okay. It's magic. I magic headphones. <laughs> <laughs> what was the problem? Well, it was on my back. Oh, okay. We can talk about this in the web language. Find out, see the transition the, from no. The problem is, is that this thing is now pointing at your chin, and uh, so I'll hear that. Can you? No. You want me to just? How do you sound? I sound fine. Yeah. Do you want me to just hold it? No. I'm serious. I could. No, but I do wonder about maybe. Here. Remind oh. me about this issue next time. Okay. All right. So I'm going to try not to move. Okay. Good. That's good. Um. All right. Yes. I was going to. Hmm. Sound better. All right. Um, so let's define a manuscript. What is a manuscript? Okay. Well, literally, a manuscript is something written by hand. Um, that's a pretty wide definition. So uh, you could include in that, I guess, your to-do list or your grocery list. But for our purposes, a manuscript is understood as uh, a text written by hand which was thought worthy of being kept. Mm -hmm. Normally a manuscript book, so what we would think of as a book, but written by hand rather than printed. But also we've at times done archival materials. So it would be handwritten things considered to be of historical importance, whether regarded as historically significant at the time they were written, like chronicles or lists of important figures or something, or regarded by later people as mm -hmm. um, of historical significance. It's something that you pointed out in 
in one of the pieces you wrote is, um, I do think maybe when we, when the word manuscript gets used casually, you think of something that's an original. Mm -hmm. And you pointed out that most manuscripts are copies of lost originals. Um, but precisely, as you say, they were copied for a reason, because right. they were important. Well, the way we tend to use the word manuscript today would be, I write a book. Right, and this is the first This thing. is the manuscript of my book, right. meaning it hasn't yet been, Become. been printed, mm -hmm. so I've handed it over to my editor. Mm -hmm. And it's usually, of course, generated from a laser printer. Mm -hmm. So it's not a manuscript in the technical sense. And one of the things that, that I do try to remind people is that manuscripts have an inherent, at least manuscript books, have an inherent desire latent within them to be copied and handed on to someone. Mm -hmm. And most manuscripts which have survived have survived because they are copies and because they are texts that were found to be useful. And the original uh, copy of the manuscript, whoever it was who wrote it down for the first time, whether it was a liturgical text or an original theological work, is long gone because it wore out or it was destroyed mm -hmm. or um, there was some kind of natural calamity. And so it's the copies that survive. Mm -hmm. and that's true of all of our manuscripts of the Old and New Testaments. And that's certainly true of the kinds of works that we tend to photograph. Right. And, but also, um, because of the nature of them physically, as you say, there's, they also are carriers of more than just the text that's mm -hmm. in them. That they tell, you use this phrase, the, the stickiness of manuscripts. What do you, yeah. what do you mean by that? Well, it's, this is one of the interesting evolutions in a way that's happened in manuscript studies because a, an earlier generation of scholars thought of manuscripts in terms of the fact that they carried texts and the actual words of a text were what mattered. And, mm -hmm. and the carrier might be of interest to some, but was really less significant than the text itself. Whereas more recently, scholars have recognized that manuscripts also preserve the context in a way that printed books simply don't. Mm -hmm. So the way it's bound, the, the marginal notes, the ownership inscriptions, the comments about the weather, or who was king, or the kind of fabric that's used to line the book, all of these things become clues then to the community which produced it, and then the communities or individuals who owned it. Mm -hmm. So our transition from the old black and white microfilm photography to the high quality color digital is important because we can look at all that stuff. But you know, it's a, what's interesting about that too is that you know, you've pointed out that um, in the early days of this project, there was a different scholarly sensibility mm -hmm. also mm -hmm. that what you had to capture were the words on the page. Right, and as you exactly. say now, I mean, technology makes you, it possible for you to get incredible, mm -hmm. high-resolution digital color. And, but um, you're saying that th there's also been an evolution in, even in this span of, what is it, 30 years, um, mm -hmm. 40 years, in terms of what we value. That's right. People do bindings. There are people who specialize in little bits of um, silk or cotton fabric that are used in bindings. Mm -hmm. All of those both artistic, craft, and, and technological dimensions of book. Book technology is a phrase you hear right. now that you just never heard mm -hmm. at that time. Mm -hmm. And so when people come and study manuscripts now, a lot of people are more interested in that stuff than they are in the texts themselves, and also increasingly interested in the communities which produce them. Mm -hmm. The history of libraries, um, the history of particular scribes and scribal traditions, all of these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. um, it's also interesting when I 
when I look at when when I just look at the stories of some of the projects you're working on and have worked on, how the the narrative of of where these manuscripts have been, what they were copies of, how that disappeared, how the manuscripts themselves were preserved, really tell the story of a, you know, it's 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 a way of talking about history as well. It's mm -hmm. it's I think as you said, it's the rise and tells the story of the rise and fall of civilizations. It certainly does. Uh, it's true for Western manuscripts in Europe. I think it's even more true of the kind of work we're doing now in the Middle East mm -hmm. because of the fate of these Christian communities right. uh, with the rise of Islam and then modern political and nationalist movements. And the survival of any of these manuscripts is a miracle. Mm -hmm. And the survival of significant pockets of them in, in collections is just fantastic. And we're feeling in that region the kind of urgency that the founders of this place felt 40 years ago with, with Europe in right. terms of endangerment to collections, uh, questions about even the survivability of some of these communities. Mm -hmm. Some of which are also the original crucibles of Christian life as well. That's right. In linguistic and cultural continuity, mm -hmm. um, living in the same areas which were the historic heartlands of major Christian traditions, mm -hmm. Syriac Christian tradition, Armenian Christianity. Mm -hmm. Well, so just you know, tell me about some of that, some of the places you're working now, mm -hmm. how you got there, what that's opening up for you. Well, it's, it's also related to how I got involved with this project. Um, as I said earlier, I was here in the monastery for 20 years before I actually worked down here. Although I was happy that we did this project, it didn't touch me directly, until we started to get interested in manuscripts related to the Christian East because a lot of my own scholarship and early monastic sources and hi historical movements had to do with things happening in what today we describe as the Middle East. Mm -hmm. So Syriac Christianity, And you talk about the there. Christian Orient, is that the same thing as um, the Christian East? These are ambiguous terms because Christian East can also be used to refer to the Greek Orthodox. Right, Eastern Europe. It can be used to exactly to refer to Slavic Christianity. Mm -hmm. Um, the Christian Orient it tends to be used more for the Middle East and, and often embracing also the Caucasus, so Georgia and Armenia as well. Mm -hmm. And that's where we've been emphasizing um, our work the last six years or so. And I got drafted in basically because we were starting to work there and I had some experience of the region, I knew some of the languages, and uh, I was really excited and interested in it because I love that part of the world. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I love particularly the mix of cultures and the antiquity of the cultures. So I'm interested in the historical angle. I'm also very interested and concerned about the present day situation. Mm -hmm. So we started in Lebanon in 2003. So let me just, I want to understand something. You, that Latin is the root language of, kind of Western Christianity, mm -hmm. but what you're getting into then when you go east even even uh, into Eastern Europe, are then these ancient. Mm -hmm. You you the term in some of the literature for Himmel is that language traditions or pathways. Right. Um, and these really were the 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 early early languages in which mm -hmm. um, Christianity was formed and spread. Is that right? That's right. And of course, it's it's even more complicated than you were just saying about Latin in the West. Yeah. Um, so right. the so the short the short form, um, Jesus spoke Aramaic. 
So it's, uh, a dis it's part of the same linguistic family as Hebrew, but it was the vernacular of mm -hmm. the whole Near East. But the New Testament writings were all composed in Greek, mm -hmm. which was uh, essentially um, a kind of marketing move to get a, a broader audience. And the first language <laughs> of even, even Western Christians, the first language of the Church of Rome was Greek because Christianity spread among the lower classes in Rome, and Greek was their language. Mm -hmm. So Latin becomes a kind of next stage of linguistic development for the West. Greek remains the... Becomes the language of the established church. That's right, mm -hmm. exactly. And, and not only in Rome and Western Europe, but also in North Africa, in Latin North Africa, which was all Roman colonies. Greek remains the, the central language in the East in terms of numbers, but there is also a native Semitic Christianity, which is kin to that Aramaic that Jesus spoke, uh, which is the Syriac Christian tradition, mm -hmm. which from the very beginnings of the Christian movement was there, and then in time developed its own literature. And those people are still there, mm -hmm. threatened, smaller, but that living tradition of the most ancient Christianity is, is still... Uh, a living church. And where are they? If you wanted to, to find their, their real heartland now, you'd go to northern Syria and southeastern Turkey. And you still find areas where people speak a modern dialect of Syriac hmm. as, a, as their common language. And then in their liturgical use, they would use classical Syriac. Okay. So, yeah, where do you want to start? So that's one one of these branches of a significant that, that, branch. That's one branch. Yeah. Um, then you have Armenian Christianity. So in the fourth century, the Armenians pride themselves on being the first nation as a nation mm -hmm. under the leadership of their king to become Christian. They get a lot of their influence theologically and textually from the Syriac world, but they translate it into their own language, into Armenian. Mm -hmm. So that tradition develops. And then, of course, later on, you have, with the rise of Islam, the Arabization linguistically of the whole Middle East. So even Christians who have a native Syriac tradition, for example, or a native Greek tradition in some of the larger cities and along the coast are using Arabic in their daily lives, and mm -hmm. gradually that supplants Syriac, at least to some extent, mm -hmm. in liturgical and theological use. So you are get the whole phenomenon of Christian Arabic. So do you are you preserving documents here that are ancient Christian documents uh, written in Arabic? We're doing all of the groups I just talked about. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're working with texts that are in Syriac. We're working with texts that are in Armenian. Mm -hmm. Working with texts that are in Christian Arabic. And, uh, and then the sort of interesting things you find when cultures overlap as they do in that region. Uh, there's a linguistic phenomenon called uh, Karshuni, which is Arabic texts written with Syriac letters. <laughs> uh, and this is partly to make it feel more a part of the Syriac tradition, even though it's this sort of common language of the right. region, and also partly in a way to protect the contents of those texts from people who don't know the Syriac alphabet. And there's also Ethiopic. Is the, does that mean Ethiopian, or does that mean something derived? Well, there's a, no, there's a, a kind of 19th century way of talking about the classical Ethiopian language uh, and describing it as Ethiopic. Okay. And we today tend to call it Ge'ez, which is the actual name of that language. Mm -hmm. um, and what, what Ethiopian, people, Ethiopian people themselves would use to describe it. 
So we had a history of working in Ethiopia in the 70s and 80s. Mm. Uh, it all stopped because of the Ethiopian Revolution and Civil War. We've done some tentative projects in Ethiopia over the last three or four years. So there's that whole other Christian tradition as mm -hmm. well, mm -hmm. uh, which is a completely different yeah. from all these other things in the Middle East. completely itself. It's its own thing, mm -hmm. absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, so there's so much, uh, there's so many projects you're working on now that you have worked on, but I think maybe the best way is just for you to, you, you were just getting ready to talk about, you know, your, your passion for this beginning, mm -hmm. your engagement beginning, and, you know, just talk to me about some of the projects maybe early on that mm -hmm. captured you and why, and let's go from there. Sure. Well, there's a, a large element of um, serendipity uh, which I suppose theologically we call providence <laughs> to, to the evolution of, of things like this. So mm -hmm. we, we began our work in Lebanon in 2003 because there was a St. John's alumnus whose wife was very good friends with a prominent politician's wife in Lebanon. Uh, they were very well the connected. The way the world works. Exactly. And they mm -hmm. were well connected with one of the, the churches in Lebanon. Through them, um, we made some contacts. We went over in 2003, early in the year, I went back with Wayne, our tech guy, and, uh, and another fellow to start the project in April of 2003, which was right at the time that the American troops were entering Baghdad. Right. So it was a really interesting time to be in the Middle East and, and sort of brought home the fact that although Lebanon seemed very stable at that point, nobody knew what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And we had no idea Lebanon itself was going to have the problems it's had. Mm. And, uh, I think we all had a sense that the game was changing in the Middle East. So we started work in one place in northern Lebanon, not far from Tripoli, which has been a very troubled place the last couple of years. And we started going around to meet people. And the way you do this, it's like, I suppose, any business. You call on people. Mm -hmm. And you let them know who you are and what you do. And you keep calling on them until they say, yeah, we'd love to work with you, or they say, no, we've got other ideas, or this isn't going to work for us. And so we next started a little Armenian project. Mm -hmm. So when you're calling on people, you're saying, we are photographing, preserving mm -hmm. documents. Could we photograph and preserve yours? Is that, is that what you're asking? And in the Middle East, working with church groups, I go in my habit. Mm -hmm. And uh, after my first year or so doing this, I grew my beard. So I would look like a monk really? in, in the Eastern understanding of what a, of what a monk looks like. And uh, everyone we talked to knew what Benedictines were. So they might have had a, a certain amount of suspicion about Westerners generally, mm -hmm. Western Christians particularly, well, ca Catholics especially. And the history of this uh, is also in many of these parts of the world that Westerners, not necessarily right. Catholics, but Westerners plundered these that's places right. and took the manuscripts away. Right? Exactly. And here I am an American. Uh -huh. So could this be worse in, in mm -hmm. one sense? But by um, indicating to them my familiarity with their tradition and my respect for it, um, showing them some of my academic pedigree from my studies in Oxford with um, leading experts in Syriac Christianity and mm -hmm. Greek Christianity, and then working also with local allies. We have a young Maronite and Walid Murad, who works with us, uh, now full-time. And he's a local, so they would meet him and they would say, what village are you from, and mm -hmm. try to put him on the map. And so all of those things helped. And gradually, word spread. Um, 
And so one project led to another. And we went from Lebanon then to Syria. We were able to start a number of projects in Aleppo, which is the, the ancient town in Syria full of Christian refugees from places like Turkey and hmm. northern Iraq. So we've done three projects there now. And bit by bit, worked our way north into southeast Turkey. One of the things that you write about is um, that manuscripts, um, what is, let me just look at my, let's see, that this quality of stickiness, that how the manuscripts continue to tell a much more of a story mm -hmm. about context and their creation than just, just the text itself. That, that quality remains most vigorous for when members of the tradition that created and used it retain guardianship of it. Mm -hmm. um, and you know that better than most people living today, but what I guess what you're doing then is a, perhaps a little bit paradoxical because you're going into, you're going mm -hmm. to these guardians and not saying you want to take it from them, right. but maybe that, is that the fear that they have because you are in a sense, lifting it out of its context mm -hmm. in order to preserve it for future generations. Well, there's certainly an instinct that people who have care for these manuscript collections have, a, an instinct they have to protect it. And many of them initially think that even a photographic copy somehow diminishes the significance of the original mm -hmm. or somehow compromises their proper ownership and rights to the original. And so we work with that. So we just talk about what we do. And so there's a certain amount of, I suppose, education that happens about how these are actually going to be used and mm -hmm. assurance that there isn't a financial or commercial um, angle to this. And that's not hard to convince them of when they realize <laughs> that, that the only way to profit from a manuscript, as I tell them, is to sell it. Right. And that's the one thing that's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. They are not going to sell their original. and. There's no way that we can make money selling photographic copies because mm -hmm. the market is minuscule. Mm -hmm. How many people can actually read them? And most of these are not beautiful works of art. They're important because of their contents, or important because of some of the physical aspects which speak of the communities which produce them. But they're not the sort of thing you'd make a coffee table book out of right. or that you'd, you'd put on your wall in a poster. Mm -hmm. So gradually, most of these people come to understand the benefits of having a certainly an archival copy somewhere just in case as, as a kind of insurance. But also many of the church leaders especially recognize that it's a way to raise the visibility well, of, their, of their communities. Especially where these dwindling communities, endangered That's communities. Yeah. That's right, exactly. Um, and I mean you, it, it's actually quite difficult I think for a 21st century American or probably European as well to even imagine that kind of emotional bond, the value people mm -hmm. would invest in these ma written manuscripts. Um, so has that, has that been, t tell me, you know, how you've experienced that, what, what it means when you, when you have gone to cultures where you, they have scribal traditions where people are still living with manuscripts in a way that is just completely beyond our imagination mm -hmm. now. Well, in the West, the, the connection with manuscript culture was broken largely by the invention of printing, mm -hmm. but also by what happened in Europe with the Reformation, the Counter-Reformation, the suppression of monasteries. All of this led to manuscripts becoming things that were found in 
essentially state-run research libraries. Mm -hmm. So, so again, no taken away from yeah. the guardians and really exactly. losing the meaning that had been invested and in. And as, as I've uh, you know, said to people, even the guardians, even church groups, weren't really interested in them because they had no particular use for them. Right. They had moved to printed books themselves. Yeah. In the Christian East, on the other hand, um, manuscripts have remained in use even to this day in some areas like Ethiopia, parts of Syria and Turkey. But even where they no longer actually use the manuscripts, it is a tangible link for them to a tradition which at one time was much more robust than it is now. Okay. And in some cases, a collection of manuscripts is the only remnant of a community which no longer exists. And the manuscripts from a particular place have been taken somewhere else and taken there when they left everything else behind mm. okay. because that was the living link. And so to see those collections and to hear people talk about, um, even within living memory, the story of how manuscripts went from one place to another, what happened to the original town or, or village where those manuscripts had been, uh, meeting people who belonged to a transplanted community, mm -hmm. many of whom can't read these things at all because they're written in a, a classical liturgical language, but who nonetheless regard these things as holy objects. Mm -hmm. So they're profound bearers of cultural significance. And in some of these communities, certainly true of the Armenian um, tradition, these really are venerated as sacred objects, as we might venerate a relic or an icon or uh, the Blessed Sacrament or something like that. Really? You, you write it, you tell the story in one of the essays you wrote about, I um, can't remember where, maybe you were in Ethiopia, but coming across some young children and a monastic teacher. They oh, were working was, with their This was unbelievable. Was it Ethiopia? It was in Ethiopia, mm -hmm. northern Ethiopia, in a little town called Yeha, which now is way out in rural Tigray province. At one time, it was the capital of Ethiopia before Aksum became the capital. So we turned up, a group of 10 or 12 of us, uh, board members of, of the library and myself, and we just wanted to sort of see the place. And we arrive and get off the minibus, and uh, there's a couple of kids basically sitting in the dirt with a big manuscript, which is probably half the size of one of the kids himself, <laughs> propped up on his knee, and he's reading aloud. And around the corner, sitting in the shade under a tree, is a monk with another copy of the same text. And the boys are learning how to read Gez. So it's not their modern language, it's their church language, but they're learning to read it for church, just like their fathers did and fathers before that and the whole chain of continuity. And they're using a manuscript. Mm -hmm. And this, this wasn't staged. Uh, this isn't a popular tourist destination. They were actually doing it the way all of us used to do it mm -hmm. in terms of learning these traditions. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was an astonishing moment. And I've seen, I've seen other things. I've, I've met people who wrote manuscripts, or at least when they were younger, when in their churches, like in southeastern Turkey, manuscripts were still being copied. Uh, I've seen places in Armenia where manuscripts come home to a church which used to own it before the communist era when all the manuscripts were taken away. Right. And people mobbing the manuscript to want to touch it as if it were um, some incredibly important relic or if it were, you know, some incredibly famous pop star athletic figure today to the Western <laughs> Really? Yeah. And they all want to touch it. Hmm. And it's a tiny little manuscript. It's nothing impressive or um, 
particularly significant as such. Mm -hmm. But for them, it's the focal point of their history and their tradition. Mm. Well, why don't you show me what you have here? Sorry, okay. All right. You want, to, you want to switch tapes? I'm going to adjust this again and bring this across to here. Okay. Sorry. It's just for some reason. There's the many voices of Kristen Tippett. <laughs> <laughs> At some point, I want to—I do want to say a, a word about Ukraine and India, okay. just as okay. sort of completing the book. All right. Um, why don't you show me these, and then we can do that. Okay. rapidly evolving as well. Mm. No? Five years ago, we just did a radio with great big fat microphones. Yeah, I, I described that. I d I've done some stuff in the studio here. Instead of, I described it as trying to kiss a grapefruit with that. Yeah. That sort of thing hanging <laughs> but at least it's static and you know yep. where it is. Right. Um, yeah, so what, you know, I was thinking that I, I guess I can maybe just get a, just a, hint of the value of a manuscript like that when you think about how a book that you've loved I mean like I just had this experience of moving and I mm -hmm. unpacked some books from college that had I hadn't unpacked for 20 years just a box that had you know been in the back of a closet and it was like taking out old precious friends and the fact that they were yellow mm -hmm. made them even more beautiful to me somehow and I mean, that's just a, you know, just an echo of, but we don't have experiences like that. Mm -hmm. And that's not even, I mean, to imagine it being something that's handwritten. Diaries, journals, that's probably yeah, as close that as we get. Yeah, that kind of thing, right. I think this is a related story because we didn't waste time here. Um, my daughter, she's 14, right? So she's this whole new generation where, like, they don't talk on the phone. They text and they email and, well, sometimes they do all three at once. Twitter, all of these things. Yeah, but her friends, they, they went away to summer camp this summer and they discovered letters. And I hear these completely... My niece, the same thing. ...hilarious yeah. discussions yeah. where, Trent, where they say, Wow, aren't letters fun? Yes. Yeah, they're awesome. Mom, have you ever written letters? <laughs> and I think they're going to rediscover letter writing in 10 yeah. years. Yeah. <laughs> it's, so it's so funny. I had the same deal with my niece this summer. At camp, you know, she got yeah. four letters from her best friend. Yeah. And, but she sent her best friend, uh, some other girl, five letters. And right. 
This is like a big deal. It's like the 19th century. Yeah. You know, uh, it's great. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Um, so that sounds great to me, so okay. I won't move. All right. I'll just hardly breathe. Okay. Show me what you have here. These intriguing. Uh, well, you asked me what a manuscript is to, yeah. to define a manuscript. And um, part of the challenge is that people who have some awareness of Western manuscripts, because they've been to a museum, have an idea of what a manuscript is. And the idea they have is something like this one, which is a classic book of hours. Oh. And so it's, you know, your usual thing. Right. It's beautifully illuminated. It's gorgeous. It's written in Latin. It has lots of color. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a nice size. Mm -hmm. And what they don't realize is this isn't a typical manuscript at all. Okay. Um, this was actually a factory produced. I was going to say, I can't artisanal imagine work. that that was yeah. written. So something like this was, um, it was all done by hand, but it was done as a commercial product, basically for wealthy people to use for their own private okay. devotions. More typical of a manuscript, at maybe the opposite end of the scale, mm. is this one from Ethiopia. Okay. And uh, Ethiopian manuscripts often have these carrying cases, which are used to sort of sling it over your shoulder. Right. And the great thing about Ethiopia today is, while manuscripts are not written as much as they used to, only in a few places, they still sell these little book covers for people to put their Bibles it's really in. really kind of like salters. a leather purse. Yeah, exactly. That's what it looks like. And often, Shoulder there, bag. often there's a flap, and mm -hmm. you can see this one has been repaired, mm -hmm. and it's been kind of charmingly repaired with mm -hmm. a little piece of leather they haven't taken the fur off. Right. So we, we love to, to share this one. So this looks like something you might see on National Geographic that was found in a cave. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And it's it's how a, old is that? It's a classic Ethiopian style manuscript. This one is 18th century. Um, it, in terms of the way it's put together and designed, it could mm -hmm. also be 20th century. It's just that this one shows mm -hmm. from the style, the writing, so and the wear. So it's just a wooden cover. It's a wood cover, um, and you can see it's even a wood cover that's been repaired because it's mm -hmm. it's split along the grain, and it's made up as all manuscripts are. You take a few pieces of paper and you fold them over and stitch them and then you stack those folds and mm -hmm. then you stitch those together. This one, like many Ethiopian manuscripts, doesn't have a leather cover on the back like our books do. Hmm. And so you can see the, the infrastructure of the right. binding. Right. But you look at a, a manuscript like this and um, you can see that this is one that was really used. Yeah. The edge of the page has been repaired where it was turned. These are protective How kind of chamois end paper? papers. This is made out of vellum. So this is treated animal skin, like many of the Western manuscripts and some Eastern ones. Mm -hmm. And they reused a, a page from a 16th or 17th century manuscript. So this might be a replacement manuscript. Mm. And then they reused an old page as a kind of flyleaf, which is very common. And then the manuscript itself. And you can see that it's blackened from the oil on fingers as the pages have been turned. Mm. This is the Book of Psalms, which is the most commonly uh, found Ethiopian manuscript. And it's also been close to the fire. You can see little edges where yeah, somebody left it next to the campfire one night. It smells of fire. And the, the text is written in the classical way just like all of the manuscripts we work with, somebody went through and uh, lined out all of the writing. Mm -hmm. You can also see the pen pricks on the side, which were used to hold it down and to measure oh. the lines. 
And then using black ink and red ink for headings, uh, the manuscript itself. What language is this? This is in Gez. Yes. And Gez is a Semitic language. Right. It, uh, it looks a little bit like, I don't know. I mean, I, almost, I thought it was Greek from a distance, but. No, it's, 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 it's a Semitic language. So mm -hmm. it's in the same broad family as, as Hebrew and mm -hmm. Arabic and Syriac. Um, it's unusual, though, in that Gez has vowels and not okay. all Semitic languages do. Mm -hmm. And so this is a, a great artifact because, again, you see all sorts of little bits about people who owned it, extra text they've written at the end, doodling. A little doodle. In, in, <laughs> yeah. in, in a modern ballpoint pen or felt tip uh, marker from somebody, you know, maybe as late as the 60s or And 70s. when I look at this, um, I can actually imagine that people would crowd around it and, and want to touch it. Mm. And a lot of people did. And obviously somebody's kids got hold of it mm -hmm. because there's all sorts of doodles in it. Mm. So you find something that had been in the family, like a family Bible, the difference being that this was probably used right. quite regularly until, right. until fairly recently. Mm. Another example of the kind of manuscript that is more common than the fancy Book of Hours is this one which is an Italian manuscript of the Gospels, 12th century. And it has a little bit of ornamentation, but it's basically um, plain text. The writing is so tiny. Yeah, this, this must have been done by very, very young scribes. I was going to say, certainly under 40. Certainly not, but not by I me. don't even think most people could, uh, so that you think they had small hands so they could write that small. You know? That or, or, or very fine find uh, quills that they wrote with. But it's also telling us something important about a manuscript mm -hmm. because the canon of literature, of course, is smaller. This is a manuscript of the Gospels, probably written for an itinerant preacher, a Dominican or Franciscan, mm -hmm. who would have used it uh, only for reference because he essentially had the text memorized. Okay. So when you think about it that way, the small writing isn't so much of an obstacle because you're just needing... It's like footnotes for Exactly. Mm -hmm. So you're just looking That's up the text. That's what it looks like. It looks remember. like footnotes. That's right. Um, you don't it curl also up doesn't look as used. It doesn't have yeah. the fingerprints. It's been... Um, it's probably been trimmed at some point to clean it up a little bit and rebound, but you're right. It, it wasn't as heavily used. That book of Psalms was probably used for daily devotions, mm. and this is more of a reference to it. Now, when we, we talk about the Eastern Christian manuscripts and some of these issues of changing cultures, one of my favorites in our collection is a manuscript from Egypt, which is actually written in Greek. It uses a Coptic-style alphabet, okay. but it's actually written in Greek, and it has an Arabic translation. And it's from the 14th century, written in Egypt for a monastery. Oh, over to the right. Over so to the right. Parallel. So you have a parallel translation. And it's, it's interesting for all kinds of reasons. Uh, by the 14th century in Egypt, the Christians, who may centuries before have used both Greek and their native language of Coptic, had long forgotten Greek. But they kept copying Greek texts because those were important for their history. So somebody copied out this Greek text of the liturgy, mm -hmm. Uh, and it's full of misspellings, and they're misspellings that would be made by somebody uh, who didn't really know Greek so well, was okay. a Coptic speaker. But because, of course, Greek was no longer known, 
they provide it with a parallel translation, <laughs> okay. and they use Arabic, because that's the language by the 14th century, mm -hmm. even though Coptic was their church language, Arabic was the language they spoke all the time. Mm -hmm. So it's again a reminder of these layers of culture and changes in language and culture, and the fact that there is this flourishing Christian Arabic tradition, which is rooted in these pre-Arabic Christian cultures, but which it uses Arabic today as its common language. And this manuscript typifies that. This is one that's been restored quite a bit. Okay. And uh, when yeah, it was... it's very beautiful and pristine compared to the others. Exactly. And it's, you can see the paper's been yes. conserved and, and so on. What was interesting about this particular manuscript when it was edited and studied is this is the oldest known copy of these texts. So somebody, for whatever reason, kept copying this Greek stuff. And it turns out that it's something that actually has great scholarly value, hmm. which is not true of most manuscripts. Most manuscripts are not, in some ways, that important in themselves. Right. Many of them are uh, more important for the particular community they represent or the collection that they've been in. There are obviously some stars. Right. You say that manuscripts made it at some point they they made a transition from being everyday objects to becoming artifacts. Mm -hmm. Certainly for us in the West. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, this was an everyday right. object until fairly recently. Yeah. Um, things like this. These are these are certainly artifacts for us. I mean, nobody has used this for daily devotions since 15th, 16th century, right. at least. And a family may have kept it as a treasured possession at, until. For whatever reason, it was sold. Then we have some um, some fragments of history, and one of the the fun things about old manuscripts is they tend to be recycled. Hmm. Uh, just as we saw, they used a piece of an old manuscript as a flyleaf. A lot of old manuscript pages survive as book covers. So the way that maybe you did when you were a kid, you'd make a cover out of a paper bag for a right. textbook in school. They would use old pieces of vellum manuscripts as, as book covers. And so this is one that is a fragment of the Pentateuch, so the, hmm. the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. But it's written in the Samaritan Hebrew script. Hmm. And it's from one of the famous Samaritan Pentateuchs, which is a reminder that the Samaritans, which we hear referred to in the Gospels, are actually still a living hmm. but very small hmm. Um, Jewish sectarian group in, in Israel. And this is a page from one of their manuscripts, which came to us recently, um, given to us by an Egyptian man who founded it in, in an antique store in Cairo, <laughs> where it obviously ended up from uh, a British, maybe member of the Egyptian colonial administration or military. And the inscription in the lower right-hand corner mentions that it was obtained by a traveler in novelists. Written in English. Written in English. A and lot of this happened in Egypt too, didn't it, especially? Yeah, it did. Mm -hmm. But this was actually obtained in Palestine in 1864 by a traveler mm -hmm. who bought this off of the high priest of the Samaritans who sold him this piece of an old manuscript, which was no use to them anymore. And it says for uh, a little bit of money and also some arak, which of course is a liquor. I've met the current high priest of the Samaritans who now has a souvenir stand in Nablus, and I bought a Diet Coke from him, <laughs> which is a, a little different from, right. from getting a manuscript <laughs> fragment. But there are survivors like this, which 
are interesting in themselves because mm -hmm. they're ancient texts. And also, again, there's this little bit of stickiness. Yeah. So we know how it left that community, where it had already been reused as a bookbinding. So it was a cast-off, even in its own community. And then another example, just to get a word in for the Armenians, is a 12th century fragment of the Gospel of John in Armenian, which again was preserved as a bookbinding or as a flyleaf. Uh, and this is in the oldest known Armenian script with later commentary on the side from when it was used as a binding. Oh, I see. So one of the things that, that we find in a lot of the manuscripts that we're uh, photographing now is things like this that have been reused as bindings, as fly leaves, and we photograph all of that. Mm -hmm. Because again, these are things that, that scholars want to see and uh, try to glean whatever they can about the history of these communities. Hmm. I think you, um, you, uh, you've told a story about being in, um, how when you went to Ethiopia, when the Himmel went to Ethiopia in the 1970s and you would have monks just in line bringing things they had and that among what was collected were the oldest known copies of all the books of the Old Testament. So. In, in Ge'ez, in, in their Ge language. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. And they were still um, using them in some cases. Incredible. I mean, part of this is the nature of Ethiopian monasticism, which really does feel like stepping into the Middle Ages for us. Um, the country itself has been through so much recently, but there are still these, these living ancient cultures there, which show very little evidence of the intrusion of modernity. Mm -hmm. And so for them, using a... a 7th century, 9th century, 10th century manuscript, as long as it's legible, it's no big deal. Mm -hmm. So there, there's not a sense of the passing of time or the sense that that belongs to a different age. How, how does this encounter for you and your, your colleagues here, your fellow monks from St. John's, um, with these ancient, with these monastic communities which have, which do seem to be to retain characteristics of earlier eras. I mean, how has that changed or broadened your your sense of what it means to be monastic? Has it changed you? Well, there, there are two sides to this. Um, there have been many experiences I've had of living among these ancient communities which continue to survive. In some cases, uh, they're flourishing again after almost dying out. And there's something thrilling about being in a monastery in southeast Turkey at Morgabriel Monastery and getting up at 4.30 or 5 in the morning and gathering in a church which has been there since the 4th century with 6th century mosaics and hearing a group of kids gather around a single large volume of Syriac to chant the liturgy in the same way they've done it forever <laughs> and to know that it's been sung the same way in the same place for 1,500 years, 1,600 years. And that's thrilling. And that's something we don't have in the West, where our, even our monastic tradition is not so continuous. Yeah. So that's, that's poignant and powerful. And it makes me a little wistful, because that's not our kind of monasticism. Uh, it also makes me think harder about one of the questions that I'm working on now in my own scholarship, which is the, the nature and the traits of traditional monastic culture. And then the really challenging question of how much of that's possible now. Hmm. So as a 21st century Benedictine 
how honestly can I say I'm really part of that tradition? Hmm. So that, that's one side of it. The other side of it is seeing so many monastic traditions which became extinct and sort of picking through the, the remnants. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is an experience I've probably had most powerfully in Western Ukraine, where we started a project a year ago. And going to the major state library in Lviv, which is the major city of Western Ukraine. And this is a place that at one time was part of the Austrian Empire, then it was part of Poland, and then it was occupied by the Nazis, and then the, the Soviets had it. And, so by the Soviet period, of course, they shut down all the churches and the monasteries, took all of the manuscripts, dumped them into a state repository where the curators have done their, their very best for decades under very difficult circumstances to care for what they have, but can barely digest all of the, the remnants of religious cultures that have been deposited there. So I turn up, and they take me around the rare book room and, and imagine um, a room not much larger than the gallery that we're sitting in here, packed to the rafters with manuscripts. And uh, they're pulling things off the shelf and saying, we don't really know what this is. <laughs> and they hand it to me and I say, oh, it's, uh, it's a 16th century missile from the Carmelite monastery that used to be here from the Austrian period. Hmm. Uh, I look down on a lower shelf and I see 20 Torah scrolls, which are the only remnants of what at one time was one of the most significant Jewish communities in Galicia, which is what that part of Ukraine is called. Uh, and the Germans, of course, destroyed all of the synagogues, uh, killed almost all of the Jews of Lviv, which at one time was 30% Jewish until mm. the early 40s. Mm. But somebody salvaged the Torah scrolls, and there they are. And they don't really mean anything to the people there now mm. because the culture, the cultural link has been broken. But somehow, miraculously, somebody recognized these are important to keep. So you're talking to people who are all Ukrainian or modern Ukrainian, who have no connection to the, the Roman Catholic traditions evident in the Latin manuscripts, to the Jewish traditions evident in the Torah scrolls. And I'm looking at that and just thinking there are so many layers of extinct culture here, and extinct from the 20th century. <laughs> right, right. So man, what does that say about the fragility of of anything we're doing, mm. which makes the work that we're trying to do with this manuscript preservation all the more important. Mm. Um, what happened to those Torah scrolls? Do you know? Are they still there? They're still there. There's, there's an American project which has been trying to track down and inventory them. Um, and I know somebody's looked at them. Now, most Torah scrolls, you don't digitize them, A, because they're holy objects, and B, because it's copies of the same text. Mm -hmm and the scribes are so careful, but people are aware of them. Mm -hmm. And there is, I know, a rabbi in Virginia who's got a project of trying to find Torah scrolls in private hands in Eastern Europe and basically ransoming them so they can be used as they reestablish congregations in that part of the world. Yeah. Fascinating. No, um, yes, okay. It's because Mitch is such a perfectionist that we win Peabody Awards. You mentioned also some work you're doing in India. What's that? 
Well, as I said, you meet people and doors open. And um, when we talk about these, these Christian traditions and the, the pathways of language and culture, uh, one of the most fascinating and relatively little known such pathways is the move of Syriac Christianity from the Middle East. We were speaking of Syria and Southeast Turkey where mm -hmm. it originated and where some of those communities survive today. They had an enormous missionary outreach through Persia and down to Southwest India. And so today, actually, the largest number of Christians in the Syriac tradition are Indians huh. in, in Kerala in Southwest India. And I, I met a colleague who was trying to organize a project. He had made a, an incredibly courageous beginning of work there, but needed some institutional support some technical support, some, some financial support. So we've partnered. And he's a Hungarian, Syriac scholar, but he had met local Indian scholars and church people who were interested in preserving their own culture. So we've now formed an association working in Southwest India with uh, a very dynamic young priest, Father Ignatius Biopoli, and Dr. Susan Thomas, who's actually a historian of modern uh, Indian history, but who has been an academic link. And she is from one of those Syrian Christian traditions herself. Hmm. Uh, so it's, it's native Indian, and the food they eat, the way they dress, all of these cultural traits. I think the, the novelist yeah. um, wrote the Booker Prize book, uh, oh, The God of Small Things. She's Syrian Christian Indian. And Probably there's, from there's the same region. There's that storyline uh, yeah. in her novel, which is so fascinating because it's just not what you associate with yeah, Indian. Ex exactly. So it's... It, so much of it looks Hindu because mm -hmm. that's just surrounding culture, just like American religion uh, looks so American in so many ways. Yeah. But uh, their liturgical practices and the language of their old texts is Syriac, even though they've translated it into their own idioms now. So we're doing a project trying to identify where the manuscripts are and also some archival materials. And the, the really fascinating thing about their writing tradition is that it really pushes our notion of what a manuscript is. And I actually have an example of one of those, mm. which is a palm leaf manuscript. Wh which looks like a fan. Like it, you know, it looks even more than a fan. It looks like Venetian blinds. Oh, my gosh, look at that. Because you have all these yeah. little strips of what are originally palm leaves, like we use on Palm Sunday for, right. the, for the procession. And they, they cut them into pieces and they incise them with a stylus, uh -huh. and then they dry them, and then they string them together, and that's a book. So this is a page. I mean, this would be... This, the, would, be, this would be a page, written front and back. And, and it's not... There's no ink to this. It's just no. really the words are carved in. in it's sense. just incised, and they used a, they use a steel stylus. Mm. And uh, Susan Thomas, who's working with us there, talks about her grandmother learning how to write like this. They were, really? still, they were still passing on that, that tradition. And this is actually quite a modern text. This is just an example I have of the, of the technology. So they had books that were written like this. And they also have archival materials, which are actually on long palm leaves, which a pile of which looks like the day after Palm Sunday. And there are stacks and stacks and stacks of these palm leaves in churches throughout Kerala many of which are being thrown out by parish priests who mm. say it's old stuff, nobody can read the old language, who cares, let's modernize. And our partner, Father Ignatius, is saying, give them to me. Mm. <laughs> and so we're photographing them. Huh. 
And uh, a, a team has been found of people who can still read the old form of their language in which these are written. Is there a special so those are being challenge photographed. in photographing this? Because you don't have the contrast that you have with the there's, there's a real challenge. So, uh, so Wayne, our, our tech director, has uh, went with me and Phil Steger, my deputy, to India last January. And he spent a lot of time working with them mm -hmm. on ways that you could light it, yeah. uh, particularly these long palm leaves how you photograph them in segments, and then how you keep the digital files in sequence so that you can put it back together. Uh, so it's, it's a real challenge. Mm. And you can imagine the working conditions are not always ideal, no. um, working in, in that area, in a lot of churches which are poorly lit and dusty and so on. This looks like it would be more durable, though, than a written page. Is it or not? This is, this is pretty like durable. Wood, more pretty like durable. Wood, but the, the problem with all of these organic materials paper, leather, whatever, is they're creatures that eat them. So there's obviously fire and water are threats, but, but the greatest threat to something like this is a rat or an insect. Are you getting what you need? Okay. So this, this stuff is fun. You know, there's, there's kind of a, an intrigue and mystique that surrounds, I, mean, I think that there are more than a fair number of novels, Dan Brown, those kinds of uh, plots to great yarns. and I mean, you've worked with the Knights of Malta, mm -hmm. right, which is associated with Crusades, but also Maltese Falcon. And uh, I wonder, and the Ethiopian monasteries that when St. John's went there in the 70s, I mean, those were ancient places. No, they had documents that people didn't even know mm -hmm. still existed and I wonder if you've sometimes had uh, experienced had a sense of intrigue and mystery uh, is that real when you get close to this stuff there's some thrills um, I, I hate the Dan Brown franchise so I'll, <laughs> okay. I'll, st I'll state that here publicly All right. uh, partly because it's such bad history mm -hmm. and partly because manuscripts don't work that way. It's it's not like there's some big explosive text we found that is completely... It will blow everything yeah, wide open. It, yeah. It, it, yeah. it doesn't work that way. Right. Um, so rather than individual texts having such potency or, or my sort of uh, waking up in the middle of the night thinking, wouldn't it be fabulous to find the original copy of X? Yeah. And we've certainly been able to photograph uh, some important manuscripts, one of which is going to be published this fall. Uh, a unique copy of a Syriac Chronicle which has observations of local Christians on the Crusades. So oh. that, that's a fascinating text. Right. But most of what thrills me is encountering the communities and gaining access to some of these libraries, which are often jealously guarded because of, of fear. A lot of these communities, not only centuries of survival under Islam, but also mindful particularly in places like Turkey, of the Armenian Genocide and the, the much less known genocide of Syrian Christians, which happened in the years immediately after the Armenian Genocide. And the fact that libraries were totally lost, um, many people were killed, a lot of communities had to leave ancient Christian centers and move across the border to Syria or to Lebanon. And uh, being taken into a place and through a secret passageway and uh, a hidden door behind a bookcase and so there going is into a, real a room. Intrigue building yeah, there's a, it's a thrilling experience. Mm -hmm. And it's it's kind of thrilling in the adventure sense, but 
The real thrill is the poignancy of the moment of trust and the awe of being shown what these people hold most precious and what they really suffered to keep. And that, that's extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And that, that touches me on so many levels. It touches me, obviously, on a fundamental human level, but on a, on a monastic level, where I, I have some kind of intuitive sense of what this represents to them. It's extraordinary. Hmm. Um, that might be your last word. Um, I've just kind of, you know, you, you, the, this center, this museum and manuscript library, as we discussed early on, has its vision and mission have broadened. So you are about the preservation of cultural preservation, preservation of manuscripts in particular. You also have um, original lithographs of Picasso and Chagall on religious subjects, and you have this extraordinary St. John's Bible project. You're hosting that now. Is that the right way mm -hmm. to say that? Um, and you've written that this is all a profoundly Benedictine undertaking, that for 1,500 years, Benedictines have been committed to glorifying God by creating, caring for, and preserving books, art, and architecture of enduring quality and beauty. I just want to tease that out a little bit. Mm -hmm. How does this work glorify God in your, your understanding and your experience of it? Wow, there's so many, so many aspects to that. Um, the biblical quote which inspires that is a line that occurs in Benedict's chapter on the artisans of the monastery, where having told the artisans of the monastery not to get proud about the particular skills they have, and also having told the monastery they should sell their stuff at a slightly lower price than other people do, lest they start to get avaricious about commercial enterprises. Benedict quotes scripture as saying, uh, whatever else happens, let it be the case that in all things God is glorified. So there's that sense that every aspect of what we do, even the most mundane, like things we produce and sell, should glorify God. And Benedictines have kind of taken that little hint and run with it. Uh, Benedict himself had no idea that Benedictines would build great churches or that we would have scriptoria or that we would be preservers of civilization. Right. He was just trying to start a monastery mm -hmm. and have some guidelines for it. And uh, it's a kind of blessed accident of history that his particular understanding of monastic life became the norm for Western monasteries really only around the year 800 uh, under Charlemagne and his successors. But that, that notion that everything we do somehow should touch what is most holy and fundamental in our lives. And that instinct you find in other parts of the rule, like treat the tools you use in everyday activities like the sacred vessels of the altar. Hmm. says that everything can be a bearer of the holy. And if, as Benedict says, everyone we meet conveys Christ to us, so the, the guest, the sick, the pilgrim, our fellow monks whom we meet on a daily basis is challenging as it can sometimes be to recognize Christ and someone with the whom people I'm you disagreeing. Know too well. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Right. That instinct, that, that sort of sacramental instinct to find something holy in everything uh, runs deep in us. And so I think it's tended to make us want to do our best, uh, whether it's a, a humble task or kind of something more exalted, like uh, a great work of art. Mm -hmm. 
I think on the, the cultural side, this instinct monks had to keep copying in the Middle Ages, this instinct we've had since to study. And whether individual monks themselves are involved in these pursuits or not, a basic sense that that's something important to Benedictines and that that's a distinctive trait of, of who we are. And that's what we've continued in all of the things that you were just summarizing. Mm-hmm. And people ask, well, you know, why do you do this? And why do you run around photographing these manuscripts? And I say, uh, I don't particularly have an answer to that right now, apart from that, that instinct and that spiritual impulse. That's for people over the next several hundred years to say as they read them and use them. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's some instinct that we have as Benedictines that all of these things should be cherished and particularly things that are threatened Mm -hmm. in places where they may be lost or destroyed. And that they should be cherished, and they should be cherished somewhere particular. Things, manuscripts that are are so endowed with Mm -hmm. people's sense of what is holy, that are cherished in those communities. And they should be safe somewhere. And that somewhere, we think, should be a Benedictine monastery. Hmm. And this is that place. Okay. All right. there's something I didn't ask you about. I mean, we're going to get a tour, but we can keep, if there's something else that you want to talk about, something I didn't bring up, or Mitch, I don't know if you have any questions back there. I mean, we're, we're going to have some other opportunities to learn more. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. What is it uh, about... The people you're working with? Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so you do, as I understand, though this is the center of the work here in, at St. John's uh, in Minnesota, in all these places you're working, you are working with local That's people right. on the ground. Um, I, you know, are there any stories of those people you would want to tell us? who they are and mm-hmm. what they've meant to you. Well, one of our, our principles of the way we do our work now, which is a little different from the way the work was done in the beginning of the, the project here, is that we want to work with local people so that they have a sense of guardianship and pride in their own manuscripts. And also so that that indicates to them that we're not coming in to take something. Mm-hmm. We're there really to work alongside them and help them in the work of preserving their culture. And often these are working with young people who really have no idea what these things are. And it's a moment of awakening pride in their own culture because, of course, these are people who have some savvy with computers and can use a digital camera. They're trainable for the yeah. kind of work that we do. And we meet some, uh, some great people. Uh, for example, one of our technicians in Aleppo, Syria, actually is a civil engineer by training, but he's an Iraqi refugee. Oh. And so he came to Syria, so many Iraqi Christians did. I was going to ask with his you, family. I don't know if you're working yeah. on that, but I'm, my understanding is that mm, a vast part of the Iraqi Christian community has fled. Is this where they're going? A number of them have gone to Syria, mm-hmm. a number to Jordan, a uh, smaller number to Lebanon. Lebanon has been more resistant to welcoming them because mm-hmm. Lebanon has so many problems of its own now. So uh, Amar Giso is his name, and his family... Um, escaped and he found a job attached to the church in Aleppo 
And uh, he was training basically teenagers how to do computer stuff. He's a civil engineer right. teaching basic computer skills. And he was in the right place at the right time to work with us. And so you, you see someone like him uh, who's not only a representative of an ancient tradition, but also somebody who suffered from the modern calamities of the region. And uh, it's a very poignant mm. experience to, to see that connection between the ancient and, and the modern realities these people face. The man who works for us in Lebanon in Beirut, Walid Murad, is a Maronite Christian, uh, about 40 now, young family, very talented, master's degree in IT, and he's working with us. And he's a guy who could have certainly a better paying job, work for a multinational, think about his career. And he's chosen instead because of his deep love for his own Maronite Christian culture, his deep love for the Christian tradition in his land, and also his anxieties about its future to dedicate his time and energy to working with us. Hmm. Without him, so many of the doors that have opened could never have opened because he, he has the, the local credibility and also the political skills hmm. to be able to, to finesse a lot of these relationships. And so I've become part of his family. Yeah. Um, and so you meet people like this who are these, these sort of nodes between the ancient and the modern, hmm. and also people who are constantly asking the questions in their own personal lives about what is my future here? Hmm. Will I still be in this place 10 years from now? Uh, will my children ever know this place and this culture? And for people like us who live in probably the most secure part of the most secure major nation today, mm -hmm. um, these are questions and dilemmas we're not used to. Right. And interestingly, those questions about the future intensify the sense of meaning that they're getting from preserving what is old That's right. and ancient. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Anything else? Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, are there are there places you'd like to go but can't? There are places we'd like to go and the political situation is favorable, but it's been hard to have a door open. Uh, Egypt would be an example of that because mm -hmm. the Coptic Church in Egypt... Um, be hugely important, wouldn't it? For all kinds of historical reasons, is uh, rightfully suspicious of foreigners since the best of their manuscripts were uh, taken to the British right. Museum in the 19th century. I can understand their reluctance, but we, we're not giving up. Okay. Uh, there are also other places which are tremendously important uh, where we are doing our best to help. Uh, we are doing some work in Turkey, but we don't talk about where because some of these communities are very fragile. Okay. And um, these are really important and significant projects. And I look forward to telling their story sometime, but sure. I can't do it now. Okay. We have done a number of um, things to make contact with Christians in northern Iraq. Uh, from the best that we can tell, the Christian manuscripts in Iraq are safe, and most of them have been taken to the north, to the Kurdish Autonomous Region, mm. which is relatively stable. And I'll be going there sometime in the next year. Uh, that's a place where it's perfectly safe for us to travel. 
and trying to make contact with some people who are already doing some digitization work just to give them whatever help and support they need. Yeah. And the, the really poignant thing about those manuscript collections is a lot of things that were taken from Turkey in the early 20th century were taken to Iraq because that was thought to be a safe place oh. for Chaldean Christian communities, yeah. for the Syrian Church of the East communities. And of course, it's become a very, very dangerous place. Mm -hmm. So we, we hope to, to find out more about what's happening there and, and hope to help in whatever way we can. We're also very concerned about the situation in Georgia and Armenia. Right. Um, Georgian, I noticed, is one of those language pathways, one of those, what, seven or eight language pathways? Georgian is a real outlier for a lot of people yeah. in terms of their understanding. Um, it's an ancient Christian community with a, a very distinctive and difficult language of its own. And they're in the same ecclesiastical family as the Greek Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox. So they're different from most of these groups we're working with, mm -hmm. different from the Armenians, the Ethiopians, the Syrian Orthodox, and so on. But in Tbilisi, there's a, an astonishingly significant manuscript collection. And we're um, building a relationship with them, and we'd love to help in any way they and can. I'm, you were building this relationship before the recent Before the recent thing, out. and trying to send um, expressions of support and hmm. anything we can to help them. Uh, that's an area where people would have thought, oh, there's no real danger to any manuscripts, right. even if there would be scholarly value in photographing them. I don't think we'd be so confident in saying that today. So part of the lesson we're learning is that places where we thought all of the political and civil unrest had calmed down, like Lebanon, even Ethiopia more recently has been troubled, like Lebanon, mm -hmm. like uh, Georgia, like the Ukraine, mm -hmm. suddenly the game seems far more complicated. It's interesting, just those four you mentioned also, they're for very different sets of dynamics that are making that are exactly. bringing new kinds of turmoil. Exactly. So I'm I, I'm constantly having one eye on mm -hmm. historical sources to work with these collections, and the other eye following the news. Yeah. Um, I may be the only Benedictine with his own subscription to the Financial Times. I'm not sure about <laughs> that, but. Oh, I don't know. It but would surprise I, me if lots of it, Benedictines. It, it, I mean, I, to I, I like to be unique, Times, but uh, maybe I'm not. Yeah. But but the reality is we have to follow this stuff very closely because mm -hmm. we just don't know what's going to happen, even in the areas where we're already working, like Lebanon and Ukraine. Right. And Syria, which has been relatively stable for Christians, and Christians there will say they're the freest they are uh, almost anywhere in the Middle East, who's going to predict the future of Syria? Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, this is fabulous. You're yeah? happy? Okay. Great. Thank you.